There's a reason why, like, military guys are at the barbecue. They're all standing in a circle talking to each other because they don't have to explain the joke. Right. You know, they were all doing that stuff together. They don't have to explain everything to someone who doesn't get the the background or the context of the of the joke or the story. But I do think, you know, it's important that things that military people write is read by the general public. I think it's crucial, frankly. Welcome to the Stigma-Free Vet Zone podcast. Our mission is to help veterans and their family members transition from military to civilian life and culture. As best we can, we avoid stigmatizing names and terms. We feature conversations with those who have encountered unexpected reactions in their journey, including nightmares, rage, and isolation. Participants in our segments share experiences that make them uniquely qualified to join the quest to identify, understand, and resolve these enormous life challenges. Stigma-Free Vet Zone is brought to you by the Orban Foundation for Veterans. Learn more by visiting the OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org and donations are always welcome at the OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org slash donate. Thank you for embarking on this educational journey with the Stigma-Free Vet Zone podcast. Here's today's segment. I'm Scott Schultz, and they call him Schmo, Eric Chandler from the North Country, way up there in the Duluth world, is with us today on Stigma-Free Vet Zone. Good afternoon, Eric. Hey, good afternoon. Tell us about that nickname. How did you get that nickname? I wish it was a better story. Uh, <laughs> I was a survival invasion resistance and escape instructor, a Siri instructor at the Air Force Academy. And uh, we pretended to be bad guys in the woods at night, chasing down the stupid American students. We pretended to be Eastern Bloc people. And I had some, I made up some name for myself, Comrade Schmolensky. And then some of my buddy just kept calling me Schmo for some reason after that summer, and it just stuck. We have Eric on today because he's done some uh, really interesting things and has worked on, on especially the writing side of things. Kekakabic, which uh, was published in 2022, and uh, the first one off the press for him was Hugging the Rock. Uh, we'll let him talk about both of those in a moment, but his writing has appeared in a lot of different publications, including um, Deadly Writers Patrol. That's right. So including the Deadly Writers Patrol, nominated for a Pushcart Prize in 2014 for creative nonfiction, three-time winner of the Colonel Darren L. Wright Award for Poetry, Air Force veteran, both in active duty and with the Minnesota Air National Guard. Eric flew 145 combat missions and more than 3,000 hours in an F-16. He says he's happiest on a trail in Duluth with his wife and two children and dog, Leo. You made it through so many combat missions. That's a bunch of work that you did there. Well, uh, it wasn't World War II, you know. Yeah. It wasn't like there was flax so thick you could walk on it or anything like that. You know, we owned the airspace and all the scenarios that I was in. And some of that combat time actually came in the 90s over Iraq during this 
Southern Watch no-fly zone. As far as I know, I was never shot at once mm-hmm. in any of those missions. So, I mean, are they combat sorties? Yeah, technically, yes. But uh, nothing like uh, what people have gone through in the past in Vietnam or World War II or anything like that. I would say the most excitement was probably in Afghanistan, but I was in Iraq also. Yeah, Afghanistan was probably the closest I came to being <laughs> nervous. Yeah. Some of us uh, are nervous when we get into a plane, even a commercial <laughs> plane, Eric. Right, right. Uh, tell us where that expression comes from, uh, Hugging the Rock, uh, the title of Hugging This Rock, I, I should say, the title yeah. of your book. Tell us for the ground pounders out there. Well, I, it was actually the title of one of the poems in the book. I don't know. I just called the earth a rock and, you know, tried to think about all the lot time I've spent in the air and, you know, there's Einstein's theory of relativity and all that. If you go fast, you get younger. I had, I'd have to look it up again. But basically, the further away you get from the Earth, the gravity and, and speed and all the time I spent flying, in theory, going fast makes you younger compared to the people that you're around when you land. Like the clock they put in the Gemini program that went and orbited the Earth and came mm-hmm. back and it was a little bit behind because it was, you know, younger. Basically, it was just a weird way of looking at being down on the earth, down here hugging this rock. That's where that came from. Do you feel like you got any younger? <laughs> no, I'm pretty beat up. No, I don't feel like I got any younger. Right. But you do uh, some young-ish things relative to what I can do young-ish-wise anymore. I remember back when I was running like 70 miles a week and knocking out marathons left and right. I would mention that to somebody. Somebody would ask me to say something about it or, or be introduced and would say something about that. There's always somebody in the crowd. You did that on purpose? Yeah. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard anybody do. It's funny the first time you hear it. Not so funny after the 50th time you hear it. That's true. <laughs> I think we can agree in those terms. Uh, we've both probably done some dumb things where uh, endurance kind of things are concerned. Mm-hmm. We do a lot of running, a lot of cross-country skiing. Why do you do it? Uh, I like being outside, and that's the easiest answer. I like to be outside. I think it's good for you. And my parents were always a good example of you know being outside and uh, being active. And they're 80 years old, both of them. And, you know, up until just a couple of years ago, my dad could ride 25 miles on his bike and run a chainsaw for six hours after that. So, I mean, I aspire to being that active when I'm that old. And, you know, around here in Duluth, there's some, you know, former, up until very recently, George Hovland was a 1952 Olympic cross-country skier. He died recently uh, at the age of, around, I believe, 96 to me, he looked like some guys who look like when they're 50. Right. You know, I mean, and he was out skiing. Every day there was a, a skiable patch of snow, he was out skiing. Wow. So I just I just like to be outside, and I enjoy being outside. And the event itself, like the race or the ski race or the Berkey or the marathon or whatever, is to me it's just something you sign up for. But, you know, you spend – several months beforehand getting ready for it for me at least it isn't about the thing that you're doing that thing that you're signed up to do gets you out the door dozens of other times to get ready yeah so it's it's a process if you will you know some guys call it being process oriented versus goal oriented i've been very goal oriented all my life 
but it is both at the same time, really. I mean, I had a really nice day today. It was a beautiful sunny day here, hardly any wind, you know, no bugs, you know, three hours running through the hills in town here, beautiful view of the bridge and the lake, and it's not a race or anything. I saw maybe mm-hmm. half a dozen people, and I was on the trail by myself, and I just had a wonderful day. So, and it isn't even necessarily about the things that you're getting ready to do. It's, but because I signed up for those things, you know, you got to go out the door and get ready. So it's, it's like a chicken or the egg thing, you know. I mean, would I go run three hours by myself if I wasn't signed up for something? Maybe not. But when I am, when I do, it's almost like an upward spiral, you know, when you, when you yeah. are active and you, stay active it's it's like an upward spiral versus a downward spiral if i spend too much time drinking beer and sitting on the couch then you know then i'm more inclined to sit on the couch but having like a marathon in june and then like something in the fall and then the berkey in february there's always something about three four five months out in front of me that gets me out the door and i i like to be outside and when i finally get out the door and get over the hump and put the shoes on and put the skis on it's enjoyable you know, you mentioned the uh, upward and downward spirals. I used to feel that too in, in my hard running days, but I also felt that spiral emotionally. I don't know, it was almost uh, sometimes a spiritual thing for me that, you know, spirituality about it of some sort that it was, it just out and out relaxed me. Oh, yeah. Unwound yeah. me. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to be. Like, especially if you have, like, I still do some, some hard days. Like I do this thing called Yasso 800s. I don't know if you remember th- those, th- th- like if you do 10, yep. 10, 800s. I just did eight 800s. I'm working up to doing 10 in the last two weeks here before grandma's. And, uh, you know, so it's semi serious hard workout and it's as hard as I can go for yeah. eight miles and, you know, doing 10 half mile intervals. It's pretty hard to be upset about someone who cut you off in a parking lot or worrying about some office politics when you're out running as hard as you can, it, it kind of empties your head. Like yeah. you're, you know, for, at least on the hard days. And then even on the nice days where it's today was hard because it was long. It wasn't hard at any given yeah. moment. So it was a nice day to be outside. And, you know, I'm just looking out at the lake and I'm not thinking about chores. I'm not thinking about bills. I'm not thinking about anything else. I'm just having fun, fun out on the trail. So when I don't run or don't ski or don't do something, I feel like that day is missing something. Yeah. I feel like, I feel like I didn't do everything I needed to do that day. Like one of my favorite things to do when I'm at work with the airline is I get to the layover hotel and I put my shoes right on. I go out and start running. Mm-hmm. You're in San Francisco, you're in Vancouver, you're in Boston or whatever, and you go for a run and it's nice. Get out and see the world a little bit. Yep. And um, and you see it firsthand out on the trail. You don't, you're not looking at your phone, you know, you're out actually doing something. So if I have a day at work where I can't fit it in, in a run at the end of the day, then that really bums me out. I mean, yeah. it feels like, it feels like, it feels like a job then. It feels like work. Right. The writing, how does that fit in? Does that give you the same kind of, I don't know if release is the word, but. Uh... Well, yeah, I guess you're trying to make order out of chaos, you know, you're trying to make sense of what you see and what you've done. Different writing I do does different things, you know, for me. I mean, mm-hmm. for many, many years, the only thing I did was write about outdoor recreation for magazines. So basically, I was just trying to share the gospel of going outside. 
Yeah. You know, hey, I went skiing in this place, so I write a story about a ski trail, I, or I learned something about pulling my kids in a pulk, you know, the thing that thing that you drag behind you on right. a ski trail with the kids in it. You know, lessons learned about dragging kids around outside. I went to this uh, running race. And this is what happened, you know, writing magazine articles about stuff. I've written some several hundred magazine articles now about outdoor recreation. So for me, those are more about just sharing. I mean, I would be inclined to write them down so I remember them Mm -hmm. because I've done whole trips where I didn't write it down and, you know, I barely remember what happened. But when I write it down, it's like, it's almost like an heirloom for myself and I get to share it with other people that maybe, hey, maybe they would want to go do something like this. Yeah. At this place that I, you know, I went to this waterfall. I went to this ski trail. I went to this, you know, I did a, wrote an article about going to waterfalls over in Wisconsin. And here's where you go and here's how you get there and here's what it looks like. You know, yeah. here's, the fun we, here's the fun we had. So maybe people will think, oh, maybe I'll go try that. Because yeah. like I say, I really think being outside is good for you, no matter who you are. 2009, I started writing fiction once in a great while i'd write a short story i just make something make something up mm-hmm. sometimes those were military themed stories and then i started writing poetry around i think 2013 you know randy brown he goes yes. by charlie sherpa yes. uh, in iowa great center of gravity for a lot of people's writing careers i mean if his confidence in the stuff i was getting published poetry military-themed poetry, his confidence in that is why that first book, Hugging This Rock, exists. Because yep. he's like, you should you should put all that stuff in a book. I'm like, what? At least for me, writing the outdoor stuff is more just f- for fun, if you will. You know, I, I write it down because I want to remember it and I want to share it. The stuff that's the military-themed stuff is more trying to figure out what happened. For me, it's more like trying to understand what it meant to me and what it might mean, you know, because ultimately when you write something, it's for a reader. You know, a lot of people say they'd write even if they didn't have any readers. I, I don't buy I don't buy that. I mean, it helps you think things through. I get that. But I don't think a piece of writing has really fully achieved itself until someone reads it. So for me, the first part is obviously, you know, trying to work through whatever I'm trying to understand or make sense of for myself. And then if I do that well, and I ch- accomplish something with it, like I make sense of something, mm-hmm. then I would want, I want to have someone read it because maybe they can get something out of it for themselves, right. particularly when it comes to the military stuff. Because the things I've read in the military network of military writers that write military themed stuff, both nonfiction, fiction, poetry. I mean, I know people all over the globe now because yeah. of that network of people that have been very supportive of each other and of me. I mean, I feel like I could never repay them for some of their kindnesses and generosity. I mean, they're very, very supportive network of people you know, when it comes to military writing. I don't think I've seen a, a network Anything like that in my life now that you mention it, yeah. I think there are people all over the place who are everybody's networking uh, that way, and it's yeah, it's been helpful. Yeah, it's nice because there's a reason why like military guys are at the barbecue; they're all standing in a circle talking to each other because they don't have to explain the joke. Right. You know, they were all doing that stuff together. They don't have to explain everything to someone who doesn't get the the background or the context of the 
of the joke or the story. But I do think, you know, it's important that things that military people write is read by the general public. I think it's crucial, frankly. Anyway, yeah, very supportive group of people, particularly for me. Randy Brown uh, has been pivotal in my life as a writer as far as the military stuff goes and particularly poetry. I mean, I still can't believe that I wrote two books of poetry. I, I just right. kind of, I never would have imagined such a thing. So, you know, I've heard of the guys that are very, the, the most successful military writers, people that have a national reputation, they talk about the contrast between like mil- the military writing community and the writing community at large. I don't know firsthand whether this is true because I'm not somebody yet. They make it sound like people are pretty catty and like backstabbing and in the in the writing world at large. But my experience in the writing world has been largely outdoor writing, which is a particular like niche. Yep. And they're very supportive of each other. Right. And military writers extremely supportive of each other. You don't see people backstabbing each other about or competing. You know, they're all without fail in my experience have been very supportive and positive and want to help and encouraging, but uh, I don't really have a lot of experience in just a pure literary world of writing to know the difference, but I hope it's that supportive. You would hope it would be, but apparently, you know, the people that are in the know that are, you know, up in the higher echelons of the writing world make it sound like it, it, it isn't always necessarily that way. From my point of view, by the way, you're held in that area too. That I can see that you support other military writers, and it's yeah, a good I, try, I try to. I mean, we have a pretty vibrant local writers group here, Lake Superior Writers. Mm-hmm. They're just a writing group in general. They're not a military writing group. I worked on a memoir that I just handed into a veterans writing competition in March. And I spent the last you know decade chewing on this stupid memoir, and and I worked on it with three local writers, uh, all three of them women, all three of them with no personal military experience. Um, One of them had military members in their family, immediate family, but Mm -hmm. not in the military themselves, because I was trying to write something that a general reader would get. Yeah. And it isn't just about the military either. There are pieces of it that are, but most of it, I wrote a memoir about luck. But what the point I was getting at is that the, the local Lake Superior Writers uh, group is very, uh, again, a pretty supportive group of people. Nice to belong to them and, you know, nice to see them support each other, at least on a local level. Very supportive. Eric, a little while ago, we talked uh, about that running stuff and how some people look at it. And they've been known to tell me, as we said, that that's <laughs> dumb. And uh, you're advertising doing something literally advertising it as doing something dumb. I yeah. I don't think it's so dumb, but tell us about what that project is that you have underway. Yeah, I'm calling it uh, Schmo's Big Stupid. Jesse Diggins was the first American to ever win a gold medal in cross-country skiing in 2018. Mm-hmm. It's from Minnesota, and she does a thing every summer or every year called the, she calls it the Big Stupid. So I got the idea from her. She uh, does some big outdoor fitness uh, adventure every year that isn't maybe the smartest thing to do, mm-hmm. but she says it, quote, feeds her soul uh, and sense of adventure, uh, unquote. So 
I thought that was a, I thought that was a pretty cool way of looking at it. You know, it's a big, big, the big stupid or you know, a big dumb idea. I'm actually mimicking something that she did one year, as she called it, the big stupid. There's a loop in uh, the White Mountains in New Hampshire called the Pemi Loop. And now you're from out there originally, right? Yeah, I was born out there, and I went to high school out there. And uh, my dad and I, when I was in high school, climbed all 48 of the 4,000-foot peaks that are uh, in the White Mountains to get, well, almost all of them together. But uh, in any case, uh, this, this loop goes around the Pemajawasset Wilderness in the White Mountain National Forest, hence the name the Pemi Loop. Mm-hmm. It's a 31-mile loop, and it goes over maybe eight or nine of those 4,000-foot peaks, and it's uh, there's 9,000 feet of climbing. I thought, well, why don't I just do this big stupid, uh, the same big stupid that Jesse Diggins did a few years ago, mm-hmm. and I can kill a couple birds with one stone. My parents live in Maine, so I thought, you know, one of these times I go out to visit them, I could run over to the White Mountains and do this one day suffer fest. And somewhere in the course of all this uh, idea, I actually had a bigger idea. I won't go into it, but I, I had a big idea for like a six-week backpacking trip through the White Mountains. The only way I was going to find enough time to do that was I was going to have to beg for time off from my company. So I got the idea, well, maybe they would let me have the time off if I did it for charity. So I got the idea to do, you know, uh, Minnesota Assistance Council for Veterans. Their Mm -hmm. mission is to eliminate veteran homelessness in Minnesota. Yep. And then there's a group in New Hampshire called Veterans on the 48, which is um, those 48 being the 48 4,000 foot peaks mm-hmm. that are in the White Mountains. And they organize hikes to uh, just get veterans outside and up onto the 48 4,000 footers. Yeah. And just getting veterans outside to go hiking, you know, active, healthy outdoor activity for veterans. Right. So these two veterans outfits, I started looking at, you know, maybe doing, you know, fundraising for them. Yeah in order to try to get this six weeks off for this other idea. And finally, I looked a little bit closer at how hard it was going to do, be to do this six-week thing. And I said, you know what? I, I, I'm, I'm, I don't think I'm even dumb enough to do that. So <laughs> I, I toned it down to a one-day trip, 31-mile trip through the mountains. But I said, you know what? I, I can still raise money for these organizations. Yeah, I can still use this as an excuse to you know, make some noise for them. One is the Minnesota organization, and the other one is the New Hampshire White Mountains organization, both of them for veterans. It kind of was was a way for me to tie in, you know, both my where I'm living now and where I'm going to go do this thing. Yeah. That's my big dumb idea. That's, that's quite, <laughs> well, a, quite well, a big, big stupid, idea. yeah. And, and it's a big enough thing where you can't really fake it. It's like any of these big things that you sign up to do. Yeah, you know it's a thirty-one miles ultra marathon. Basically, it's it's probably going to take me between fifteen and twenty hours to do. So we're talking about pre-dawn and starting in the dark, probably even finishing in the dark in August. As hilly as Duluth, Minnesota is, this is a little hillier. Yeah, well, I just I just did uh, about a week ago. I did the Superior Spring Trail Race fifty k up in uh, up the shore here, Mm -hmm. and that was uh, you know thirty-one miler. And my watch said it was 4,800 feet of climbing. They advertised 4,200 feet, but I, I, my watch said I did more. So I'm going to take that. I'm going to believe my watch. So 
so it's no kidding. So even though the hilly stuff on the shore here, I've got a fair amount of climbing in, but nothing like what it's going to be for the same distance. It's going to be twice as much climbing in the White Mountains back east uh, to do this. So, And I really don't know how much actual running I'm going to be able to do because when I grew up there and the trails are roots and rocks and Mm -hmm. steep, I don't think there's going to be a whole lot of actual running, but uh, I am going to be moving all day and trying to do that. And each time I do one of these preparations, I'm doing grandma's marathon here in a couple of weeks to prepare. Mm -hmm. I did that 50 K last month to to prepare. I'm actually thinking about doing a 50 miler in July, the Voyager here in Duluth to to help Mm -hmm. get ready. But uh, I've never done a 50 miler before and boy, oh boy, I, I felt pretty fragile after that race I did a couple of weeks ago. So <laughs> we'll see if I actually do a 50 miler to get ready for this thing in August in New Hampshire. But uh, yeah, you can't really fake 9,000 feet of climbing and 31 miles. You got to get ready. So I'm doing the best I can to get ready without injuring myself while I get ready. Yeah. I'm not as young as I used to be. So <laughs> got to be careful. How do we uh, get money to you? How do folks listening to this uh, podcast find yeah, well, the organizations online or which, how do we get money to you? Yeah, it's none of the money goes through me. I, right. I, I didn't feel comfortable doing that. So it, it's just up to people whether they want to make it part of their charitable giving for the year, uh, but they can give directly to those organizations. The easiest way probably is to find my website. I have a blog Eric Chandler at wordpress.com or whatever. But if you, the nickname for the website is Schmotown, S-H-M-O, town, Schmotown. If you Google Schmotown and Schmo's Big Stupid, the landing page for my own blog, the post there about my Big Stupid. In the first couple paragraphs, I have links to those two organizations, the Minnesota Assistance Council for Veterans and Veterans on the 48, and I have links to their fundraising pages. And none of the money goes through my hands. It goes directly to those organizations. Mm-hmm. I'm basically just a guy out here making noise and pointing at them. And if you're inclined to give some money, I'm sure anything will help. So Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, hey, thanks for everything uh, that you're doing for veterans, for the world of writing. You know, that's a subject near and dear for me. Yeah. And uh, thanks for doing this big, stupid thing. Yeah. <laughs> Happy to be that stupid. I'm using my stupidity for good. Yep. That's writer, pilot, and athlete Eric Chandler from Duluth with another edition of Stigma Free Vet Zone. I thank you from the whole Stigma Free Vet Zone crew for joining us again today. And as always, I'm going to remind you that if you find yourself as a veteran in crisis, Please pick up that phone and dial 988 prompt 1. Don't hesitate and let's lean on each other along the way to thanks again Eric for joining us. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks Scott. Remember, this is all educational. Nothing is stigmatizing. I'm Scott Schultz. Thank you for listening to the Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast. Your feedback is welcomed and encouraged. You'll find contact information on our webpage, OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org. 
While you're there, please consider making a contribution. Donations help us continue to bring greater hope, understanding, and resolution on issues of civilian readjustment for all military veterans and families. Anyone who donates to the podcast will receive a free copy of the book, Sold Out, Conquering the Experiences of War by Michael Orban. Thanks for joining us, and please tune in again. I'm Scott Schultz, and...